Pray with me this morning before we dig into God's word. Father, we thank you for gathering us here together this morning. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that we are given, it being Palm Sunday, of the kingship of Jesus, the lordship of Christ, that he is our king, Lord. He is our God. Uh, He is the one who we live for. Lord, your word says that Jesus died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Lord, I pray that each one of us here has come this morning having bowed the knee to Jesus, to his lordship, abandoning all other hopes and placing all of our hope into Christ alone for salvation, recognizing that he alone has done what is necessary to save us forever. And Lord, we pray that this great salvation, um, that that would drive us every day to give you thanks, to praise you, to worship you uh, when things are going easy and when things are hard, Lord, because you are worthy of that and you transform even our trials into blessings as you use them to prune us, to make us more like your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we recognize and confess that we are not like him yet, Lord, but we thank you that we are not what we used to be, that you are making us more and more like him, and that you will be faithful to finish the good work that you've begun in us, and that the day is coming when we will see Jesus face to face, and we will be made instantly just like him, and we will be able to serve him in joy and gladness for all of eternity. Lord, we look forward to that day. But Lord, we pray that you would minister your word to us by your spirit right now, this morning, And as we come to your word and we gaze upon what our Lord has done for us and we uh, hear what your word is commanding um, us to become, Lord, we just pray that your spirit would take your word and plant it deep within our hearts, transforming us, making us what you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're back in Hebrews this morning, Hebrews chapter 13. And we're just going to be looking at two verses, verses 15 and 16. But because so many of these verses are linked together and the the preacher, the one who's writing this letter to this Jewish congregation, you know, he's, he's been building an argument. He so often builds upon what he's said before. I just want to start reading from verse 7 of Hebrews 13. He says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, 
but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. In John chapter 4, that famous passage where Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well, during that conversation they get onto the subject of worship. And in that chapter, in verses 21 through 24, it says that Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. When God saved us, he saved us in order that we would worship him and that we would worship him in a certain way. Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead in order to purchase for his father a people who would worship him. And when we do not worship God or when we worship him in a way that is different than what the father has prescribed for us to worship, we are robbing God of the harvest of worship that Jesus labored to deliver to his Father. So it is very important that we understand how we are to worship our great God. We do not have the freedom to worship God in any way that we please. Worship is for him, for his glory, and he tells us how we must do it. In Israel, under the old covenant, the whole life of the people was to be wrapped up in and consumed by the worship of God. The entire calendar revolved around certain feasts and festivals and sacrifices that were prescribed to the people for the worship of God, to remind them of who he is and what he had done for them and to spur a greater love for him from their hearts. One of the primary ways that Israel worshipped was through sacrifice. They would bring grain offerings, peace offerings, guilt offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offerings. And these were the means through which the people would draw near to God seeking forgiveness. It was the means through which they would draw near to him to express their love for him, to acknowledge their need of him, to give thanks to him. And when we think of this Jewish congregation that the writer is writing this letter to, we are reminded that when these believers placed their faith in Christ, they would have largely been cut off from this particular way of worshiping God, worshiping him through sacrifices, because the Jewish community would have rejected them because of their faith in Christ. And so that probably would have left a gaping void in their life. And that may have factored into the temptation that they were feeling to abandon Jesus to go back to the Old Covenant. 
That's what the whole letter's about. It's encouraging them to stick with Jesus, not forsake him to go back to the law of Moses. And as he's been doing throughout um, these verses, these last several weeks, verses 7 through 16, the preacher who wrote this letter, he's laboring to show the people, to remind the people that Jesus is enough for them. They don't need something extra. Christ is enough. According to verse 9, they don't need to be chasing after every new teaching that comes along, luring them with the bait of some new experience, some new tradition, some new requirement, all while hiding the deadly hook of a false gospel. Jesus is enough for them. And according to verses 10 and 12, which we've looked at in depth before, what these believers have lost in leaving the Jewish community, they have been more than compensated for in what they have gained in Christ. Jesus has offered up himself once for all upon the altar of the cross. And he did that in order to sanctify his people, making them fit to dwell with God forever. And according to verse 14, Jesus has given to them a lasting kingdom. And the fact that he has given this to them and the fact that they are to be seeking this kingdom, it makes them willing to lose everything in this world. Verse 13, to go out to Jesus outside the camp, outside their society, bearing his reproach. Jesus' one sacrifice accomplished infinitely more than all the countless sacrifices over the course of centuries that took place under the Old Covenant. If these believers go back to the Old Covenant, they will not find acceptance with God because acceptance with God is only received through the sacrifice of Christ. And this reality should drive these believers not to abandon Jesus, but to worship Jesus, to worship the God who sent Jesus to save them. But as Jews, there's a question, how can they worship God if they cannot offer sacrifices upon the altar at the temple? And this question pertains to us today as well. We're not, most of us are not Jews. But the question remains, as Christians, how are we to worship God? What kind of worship is our Father requiring of us? And we learn about this in verses 15 and 16. And as we look at these two verses, we find that there are two main categories that we can think of when it comes to the true worship of God. When it comes to the type of, quote-unquote, sacrifices we are to offer to God. But before we get to those two categories, we need to understand something that is critically important. Verse 15 begins, it says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice. Through him, then, we cannot offer acceptable worship to God. We cannot bring sacrifices to God that are acceptable to him unless we are offering them through Jesus. I want you to think back to the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, how whenever one of the people would draw near to the tabernacle to bring an offering, was that person ever permitted to plop that animal on the altar himself? 
Was he ever permitted um, to take the blood of that animal and sprinkle it himself upon the altar? No, he had to have the priest do that. The priest was the only one qualified by God to take that offering and place it on the altar, to take that blood and sprinkle it before God. He was the only one qualified, ordained to that task by God. And it's the same way in the Christian life. In and of ourselves, we have no business drawing near to God to offer him anything. He is holy. We are sinners. We have no merit of our own that qualifies us to give anything to God that would be acceptable to him in any way. Remember what Isaiah said in chapter 64 and verse 6. He said, all our righteous deeds are like a what? Filthy garment. So when we try to offer something to God in a manner that is not in keeping with how he commanded it, it is an abomination to him. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 1, because in this chapter, God indicts the people for worshiping him in a way that is other than what he prescribed, a way that is different than what he commanded them to do. Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 10. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the, to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, right off the bat, he's starting with very strong language because he's calling Israel Sodom and Gomorrah because they've become so immoral, so faithless, so unbelieving to God. Verse 11, he says, God says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you, come bef- when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. That's some pretty strong language there. As sinners, we need someone to wash us clean from our sin and to clothe us in a righteousness that we don't have in and of ourselves. We need someone who will save us, who will sanctify us, and who will enable us to actually offer worship to God that is acceptable to him. And that someone, obviously, is Jesus, only Jesus. He is our great high priest And as our high priest, he died on the cross in our place. He suffered the wrath of God for our sins in our place. And he has risen from the dead. And he's ascended to heaven where he stands at the right hand of God, even now as our high priest interceding for his people. It is on the basis of Jesus' merit, on the basis of Jesus' 
righteousness alone that we are forgiven and that we are able to draw near to God. And the only way that our worship will be pleasing to God is if we draw near to him confessing our own unworthiness and instead relying on Jesus' worthiness alone. And if we attempt to worship God in any other way, or if we attempt to draw near to God through any other person offering worship, our worship is going to be nothing but a foul stench in the nostrils of God. It'll be an abomination to him. So Jesus alone is our high priest through whom we offer sacrifices to God. There is no other person that we draw near to God through. That's why he says at the beginning of verse 15 in Hebrews 13, through him then, through him then. But that still leaves a question, what are these sacrifices that we are supposed to offer to God? Because he spent the whole letter telling us that the sacrifices of the old covenant are done away with. They weren't worth anything. They didn't accomplish anything other than point ahead to the sacrifice of Christ. And now that Jesus has offered himself as a sacrifice, how is the preacher now speaking of us giving sacrifices? What does he mean? What are these sacrifices that we are to offer to God? What is this kind of worship that we are supposed to bring to God? Well, because Jesus has made the once-for-all sacrifice necessary to pay for our sins, as Christians, the sacrifices that we offer to God are not for atoning for sin. That work has been done. So the sacrifices we bring are not to get forgiveness from God. Jesus accomplished that for us already. Rather, the sacrifices that we are being commanded to give are offered out of a thanksgiving and a love and a worship to God. We're bringing them because we've been forgiven, not to get forgiven. And we find this first way that we are to worship God in verse 15, when he says, Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. We're commanded to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Now, what does he mean when he says a sacrifice of praise? Well, he explains for us helpfully in that verse. Continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. That's what he means by a sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice that we are being commanded to continually offer up to God, it's not slaying an animal. It's not bringing some grain to present before God. It's instead praising God, giving him thanks, confessing his name. The sacrifice, it consists of our words, our speech. It's to praise God verbally, to celebrate him verbally, for who he is and what he's done and what he's going to do. And the second half of this verse, when it says, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, it's literally the fruit of lips that confess his name. Confess. One lexicon said that this word confess, it carries the idea of expressing oneself openly and firmly about a matter. 
to confess God's name, to confess his praise, to confess it's to openly and firmly declare his greatness. It's often a public confession, a public praising, a public thanksgiving. We are commanded to offer up to God praise and thanks and acknowledgement of his great name. And when it says thanks to his name, confessing to his name, his name involves all of his being and all of his doing, especially what he has done through Christ, especially who he has revealed himself to be through Christ. That is what we are to confess. That is what we are to praise him for. That is the sacrifice that we are to continually offer. And I want you to notice that it's not without reason that he, declare, he, he speaks of this as a sacrifice. When we're, when we're praising God, what he's talking about, it's a sacrifice, which implies that it's going to cost you something. In Israel, sacrifices always came out of your own pocket. When you brought a grain offering, it was grain from your crop. When you brought an animal, it was an animal from your herd. Or you would, with your own money, buy an animal if you didn't have any animals to offer to God. It came out of your pocket. We can think of King David. You remember the account when he sinfully took a census of the people. He'd stopped trusting in God and he was beginning to trust in how many fighting men he had. And God punished him for that. He brought a plague upon the people. And to stop the judgment of God continuing to ravage the people, God commanded David to go to the threshing floor of a man named Arauna and to offer a sacrifice there. And when David came to this man's property, this man, Arauna, he offered to give David the threshing floor. And he said, look, here's some oxen. You can take these oxen and offer it as a sacrifice. I'll give it to you freely. He didn't charge David anything. But in 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 24, I want you to listen to what David replied to this man's offer. David said, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. It's not a sacrifice if it doesn't cost you something. And the fact that back here in Hebrews, verse 15, the fact that it says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, continually, that helps us to understand in what way this will be costly to us. Because continually means that we must praise God when we are experiencing pleasant circumstances and when we are experiencing Adverse circumstances, painful circumstances. We just sang a whole song about that, Blessed Be Your Name, when we're walking through um, the mountains or in the dark valleys. We are to praise him. We are to bless his name. We must praise God when we are standing before believers and when we are standing before unbelievers. We must praise God when we are happy to do so and it's easy to do so. And we must praise God when our flesh shrinks back from doing so, when we don't feel like it, or when it might bring scorn upon us for doing so. We must be willing to confess 
to praise God for his glory and his holiness and his salvation at the expense of our time, our energy, our comfort, and even our reputation among our family and our friends. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Now this, that phrase, the fruit of lips, have you seen that before? We read that in our reading of the word before our time of of singing. We saw it in Hosea chapter 14 and in verse 2, that phrase, the fruit of our lips. Verses 1 and 2 of that passage again says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. That's kind of an odd saying, isn't it? Take words with you. You'd think if they sinned, he would say, take a sacrifice of a bull with you. Go make atonement. No, take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, you see this confession, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. And then notice the purpose. Receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. You see this praise to God, this fruit of our lips, it comes as a result of being forgiven. It it comes as a result of being received graciously by God. So when we offer to God the fruit of our lips, we are to offer it not to gain forgiveness, not to earn something from God, but we are to give him the fruit of our lips. We are to confess his name, to praise him because he's forgiven us, because he's lavished his grace upon us. That is the motivation for praising him for sacrificing to him in this way. This is why our worship service here on a Sunday morning has so much talking in it. We read out loud the words of Scripture that remind us of who God is and why we are to praise him. We pray out loud to God with words that thank him for what he has done, and asking him to enable us to worship him in the way that he desires. We sing hymns and praise songs that have words in them, and words that do more than repeat the same words 11 times. No, we want to sing songs that speak of the heights of God's holiness, and they speak of the depths of his love and his grace that he's lavished upon us. When we sing these songs, we are trying to use our words to stretch the English language as far as we can stretch it to try to bring as much glory to his name as we possibly can. And try as we might, the words we speak don't reach the heights of his greatness. But we try. Week after week, we try. And then you sit out there and you listen to a man stand in one spot and speak at length about what the Word of God is saying to us. And then hopefully we are being deployed out into the world in between Sundays, and we are looking for opportunities to continue worshiping God by confessing Him and praising Him to those who don't know Him yet savingly. We worship God with our words. Our sacrifices that we bring to Him, our sacrifices that we speak. So that was the first point of our outline. We worship, or the second point of our outline. First, 
We worship through Jesus. Second, we worship with our words. Thirdly, we worship with our actions. That's the second category I I mentioned through which we worship God. It's with our actions. We draw near through Christ to worship with our words, but also to worship with our actions. Verse 16, the writer says, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. We're commanded here not to be forgetful or neglectful of doing good and sharing. Now when he says this, certainly this phrase includes doing good to all men, believers and unbelievers. But in the context of this chapter, it's clear that he primarily has in mind doing good and sharing with believers. After all, verse 1 says, let love of the brethren continue. The word for sharing is koinonia. might be a familiar word to some of you. It's often translated as fellowship in reference to the shared communion that brothers and sisters in Christ have with one another. We are to be offering this communion, this fellowship, this sharing continually with one another. These words together, doing good and sharing, it's very similar to that idea of brotherly love that we saw way back in verse 1 of this chapter. These two things that we are to be careful not to forget to do really include everything we've already looked at in verses 1 through 4. Remember verses 1 through 4? Verse 1, love the brethren, let that love continue. Verse 2, show hospitality even to strangers, believers that you don't know who just show up at your door. Verse 3, we are to love the prisoners. And they're not talking about just any prisoners. It's those who have suffered for the name of Christ, who have been imprisoned for their testimony of the gospel. And then verse 4, loving the neighbor that is closest to you, your spouse. These are the kinds of sacrifices of doing good and sharing that we are to be offering to God. And like the first kind of sacrificing, this sacrificing is also costly to us personally. We need to be willing to suffer with one another, to give to one another of our time, of our resources, and even our own blood to serve one another. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 18, which is a prison epistle. Paul was sitting in prison as he wrote to these believers in Philippi, and he was speaking of the aid that those believers had sent to him. And he said in verse 18 of chapter 4 of their giving uh, material resources to him, he said, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul spoke of their selfless giving to him. He spoke of their selfless sharing with him as a sacrifice to God. And we often don't think of this kind of service to one another as worship. We don't often think of it as sacrifices to God, but that's exactly what it is. 
but it has to be with the right motivation. We can't be doing this to say, oh, I want so-and-so to like me, so I'm going to give him this. No, we need to do it because we want God to be glorified and we want to love our brother and sister in Christ. These are the two ways in which true Christian worship takes place. And both of these modes of worship, with our words and our actions, both of these things are indispensable. Because if we appear to worship God, to sacrifice to God in one of these ways, but not in the other of these ways, then our worship is actually false. The Apostle John, in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 4, he makes this very clear. Verse 15, he says, Whoever confesses, there's that word again, same word we saw in verse 15 of Hebrews 13. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. There you see that, that first mode of worship, confessing to his name. And then just a few verses later in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, John says, If someone says, I love God, someone is worshiping in that way, that first way with our words, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So you see that the words and the actions have to be there together. If I'm praising God, if I'm professing my love for God with my lips, but I'm not lifting one finger to help my brother or sister in Christ, to not do them good, to not share with them in their need, then I'm a liar and I'm not worshiping God. Or on the other hand, if I am doing good to my brother, if I am sharing with my sister, but I am stubbornly unwilling to sincerely and openly confess praise to God, then I am a liar of a different sort, and I'm still not worshiping God. See, when we are grumbling with our lips, or we are closing our heart to our brother and sister in need, we are not worshiping God. We are sinning against him. In all of this, it's important that we not miss the last phrase of verse 16. He says, Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. For with such sacrifices God is pleased. That is the very heart of worship. This is what leads us to offer sacrifices that can be so costly to us. We are willing to lay ourselves down. We are willing to lay ourselves on the line because we desire to please our God. We recognize what God has done for us in sending his son to save us, and we gladly surrender ourselves to him to do with whatever he pleases. We love him, our Father, because he first loved us. 
We're willing to lay it on the line because we know he's already saved us. We don't lay it on the line. We don't sacrifice to get him to love us. We do it because he already loves us in Christ. And as a son who is loved by his father, loves to put a smile on his father's face. So we who are so loved by our heavenly father, we ought to love to put a smile on our heavenly father's face. And offering up the sacrifice of praise and the sacrifice of doing good and sharing, that puts a smile on our Father's face. It says it brings him pleasure to think that Almighty God can receive pleasure from us, just piles of dust that God has breathed into. How can we bring Almighty God pleasure? What a privilege we have to put a smile on the face of God. But ultimately, it's through Jesus Jesus, who put that smile on his Father's face and the one through whom we approach God. That is how we can put a smile on our Father's face. So let's make it our ambition to continually offer these sacrifices to him through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is our God not worthy for us to give sacrificially of ourselves to him, seeing as how he died for us in Christ? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for these commands that you have given us in Hebrews, showing us how you desire for us to worship you. First, you desire for us to draw near to you through your Son, to not try to earn your favor, to not try to save ourselves, but to recognize that Jesus alone has done what is necessary to save us. He is our righteousness. But seeing as how he has done everything to save us, that should render us grateful. That should render us uh, eagerly offering up our lives to you, to worship you, uh, to be used by you in whatever way you please. Father, our lives are not our own. We are glad that we belong to you. We are glad that Christ paid our ransom at the cross. He purchased us from the slave market of sin and he's enslaved us to the righteous God. He has made us sons and daughters of the almighty God of the universe. Lord, we should be glad. We should always be glad. We should constantly be praising you. We should be constantly laying ourselves down for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, please forgive us when we fall short of the worship that you are calling us to give to you. Lord, we are so often selfish. We are so often more concerned about what people think, how they will respond to us confessing you rather than being concerned about what you think, being concerned about bringing you pleasure, Lord. May you do a work in our hearts. May you make us more like Jesus, quick, quick to offer these sacrifices of praise and loving service to one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.